every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Naaman Khan, CMO of Zeppelin. Naaman is an accomplished marketing leader with experience across B2B and B2C marketing and sales at some of the largest companies in the world. Before joining Zeppelin, he served as Vice President of Marketing at Dropbox, Vice President of Product Marketing at Salesforce, and held marketing leadership roles at Microsoft and Autodesk. On this episode, Naaman discusses his journey from some of the world's most recognizable brands to being a first-time CMO and setting up a new marketing organization. He also shares how he learned to harden messaging frameworks from Mark Benioff and more of the fascinating insights and most successful campaigns from his time at Salesforce and Dropbox. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. And now, please enjoy this interview between Naaman Khan, CMO of Zeppelin, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries, presented by Qualified. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today we are joined by our special guest, Naaman. How are you? Great. Hey, Ian. Great to have you on the show today. Excited to chat marketing, demand gen, and a little bit of the stops in your career that you've done some really revolutionary marketing things. So we'll get into all that. But first, how did you get started in demand gen? You know, my first demand gen job was essentially running physical events. This is when I was a marketer at Microsoft working on cloud products. And the number one ask from our sales partners were, give me business cards of people who went to an event. And as almost silly as that may sound, that's really the way it was back then. You know, you had an event and the event was the tactic through which your prospects learned about your products. They were motivated to come to the event because they could hear about, you know, back then it was Windows Azure and all these kind of new cool things. They couldn't really get that information any other way. They were keen to come and learn more. And in exchange, you know, you got their email address, you learned a little bit about them. And then we would take that data. We would not segment it. <laughs> we would not really do anything other than pop it in a spreadsheet back then. And then, you know, the AE or the, uh, you know, pre-sales engineer would literally just call it down like a flat dock. So, yeah, it sounds pretty barbaric compared to what we do now. But, yeah, that's how it started. And so flash forward to today, you're the CMO of Zeppelin. Tell us a little bit about Zeppelin and your role. Zeppelin is this awesome company that I joined about seven months ago, and they are in the design delivery space. And I say that kind of purposefully because that's really not a segment that too many people talk about. Within the world of product design, design creation gets a lot of attention. So there are great design creation tools like Sketch and Figma and Adobe XD and more. Zeppelin is not a design creation tool. It's a tool that you use once the design is finalized and you actually need to build some code to make it come to life. And so uh, that's the purpose it serves. And, you know, we have great users from great companies around the world like Autodesk and Box and you know Airbnb, all, all sorts of great uh, companies rely on Zeppelin to bring their designs to life. 
Let's get into our first segment, The Trust Tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree in the nest, are we not? This is where you can go and feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. So we're going to do a little bit of Zeppelin, but we're also going to do some jumps into some previous stints that you've done in marketing and demand in our trust tree segment today. But first, how do you think about your demand gen strategy at Zeppelin? I love the trust tree. It's such a great place to be. Uh, (laughs) There are really three components to it. The very first one is community. The reason community is really, really important to us is because our target audiences are all based upon high community influence. So think about product designers, front-end developers. These are audiences that don't respond well to paid media. They don't respond well to ads. They don't respond well to any form of like documented white paper or anything old fashioned like that, like they really rely on what are other cutting edge designers and developers using? What is their workflow? What are the tools that are really helping them? So investing in community is number one. Number two is actually an optimized website. Our website at Zeppelin serves the purpose of not only being a channel for people to learn about Zeppelin, to understand our value prop, it's sort of a top of funnel asset, of course, It's also, as a product-led growth company, it is also a transaction engine for us. And so optimizing that website for conversion, making sure we have a great free-to-paid pipeline, making sure that we have an expansion pipeline in combination with in-product optimizations, like it's super important for our self-service business. And then for our sales-assisted business, it's also the third component of our dimension strategy is making sure our product-qualified leads are optimized. And so when we work with our sales teams, we want to make sure that we're surfacing the highest propensity to buy users for sales follow-up. And so while that may sound like non-traditional, like you don't hear paid media in there, you don't hear about maybe other things you might expect, but community, an optimized website, both for kind of awareness and transactions, and then making sure you've got your PQLs set up appropriately, you know, those are the ways that we we drive demand. Let's dive in a little bit more onto your persona and the market that you're serving. Obviously, this is a huge market that you all are diving 100% into, but who buys? Who's the person who signs the check or that buying committee? It's typically a bottom-up process. So it starts with the design team. And so there's typically a product designer. And then when you get into kind of the enterprise, then you get into different signing authorities. You obviously have influencers to the deal. You end up, you know, really being part of a broader product development lifecycle solution, the head of product, the product manager, sometimes the heads of engineering, you know, all these different personas become involved as you move into the enterprise. What I will say is super interesting about this space is that every company in their digital transformation or whatever sort of buzzword you like, you know, it's moving to this app-based model. And there are so many examples, like you want to pick a bank, you look at how awesome is their banking app, you want to do business with, uh, you know, a large complex product, you want to know, hey, like, if I go down the route with you, like, what's your digital experience? Companies really need to optimize what their online product offering is. And so we've seen design just kind of really blow up in the last, I would say, 10 years, even in the last five years, where companies really recognize the value of product design as a critical factor in their success. And so you have chief design officers, you have like very, very prominent companies that have 
taught us that, you know, you want to be the Airbnb or the Uber of your industry. You want, you know, to be able to have your users just very quickly and easily interact with you on a well-designed app that they don't need training for. So that design persona is at the center of all of that. So for us, like we focus on the designer and we focus on the developer. And we actually focus more, I would say, on the developer. We have both and we love both. It's just the way that the math works, you know, for every product designer, there are probably six to 10 front-end developers. And so when we look at our user base, you know, we have that waiting where it's much more developer-focused. How do you align your team to go after those accounts? What does your organization look like? For a little bit of context, you know, Zeppelin has been around for, you know, over five years, founded by designers and developers, became sort of this very kind of mainstream, mainstay product for people wanting to deliver on design. And, you know, they've grown to tens of millions in BRR, they're profitable, like really great stuff, all without an investment in marketing or even sales for that matter. Really, the go-to-market side was just sort of not invested in, just based on the strength of the product, the strength on the community. And so as we you know, stand up a marketing function, we've invested in the following areas as our sort of first pass at establishing marketing. So product marketing is one big component. It's sort of the engine room of our team. We have people working on core audience definition, understanding what are the needs of our users, working with our product partners to bring, you know, the roadmap to life reflecting the market realities, working on core content. You know, we just updated our website. We created our first product video ever. It's pretty exciting. Hey, now. That's always fun. I know, it's great. And you know, it's one of the unique joys you get in working with a company this size for somebody like me having like worked at bigger companies is that when you take a look at what the product does, you know, I spoke to like 50 customers when I joined just to understand like, what is it that you use Zeppelin for? Help me understand. You learn from them, you create messaging that ties back to your product truths, you create an asset like a product video. And then when you share it, like people who have been there from the beginning look at it and it's like an emotional experience for them. They're like, wow, that is actually what we do. It looks so official and so like professional. So it's really, it's awesome to work on kind of fundamental stuff like that in marketing. So product marketing is like number one. The second group that we have focuses on growth. So we have a great growth marketing capability here at Zeppelin where, you know, we have a majority of our ARR comes through a self-service engine. So just working on the things that you need to do, which is like, you know, top of funnel and then free to paid and then expansion of paid and then you know, churn reduction and then, you know, contraction reduction, all those good things is the second team. The third team is our content team. And so I mentioned our community is really important. We have a great content marketing team. They have started to spin up just some amazing content that is all, you know, going to be SEO indexed and optimized. You know, again, helping designers and developers deliver on design, really helping them understand how we can help them and sharing great stories from the community. And then our final team is our evangelist team. And they uh, really work, again, based on the community. You know, we do all kinds of meetups. We have all kinds of video webinar series that we do. You know, we attend events and seminars that ex people expect us to be at. And so that's the final group. I don't think I'm leaving anybody out. We do have a plan to have a more dedicated campaigns team. Right now, the PMMs are leading campaigns. But as I said, you know, we're new. We want to really stand up the crew that we have, get everyone working well together, get the infrastructure in place. You know, we just set up an awesome data warehouse. Like all that MarTech needs to be built and humming. And then we'll, you know, expand and add more people to focus on things like campaigns. And you came from a few companies that were extremely established that you were kind of taking from 
those marketing teams or those products from kind of the end to 10 to end to 100 for lack of a better analogy here. Whereas, you know, this product you're kind of taking from first marketing. How did you bring some of that larger company marketing secret sauce into a company where you're just standing up marketing for the first time? I think for me, like there was a lot that I could offer, which was very attractive. It's always nice to walk into a role where you know that you can have impact. And then I also have a lot that I can learn, which is really good for me as a marketer and first time CMO. I think the handful of things that I really brought that I had learned, I would say the hard way, are, you know, very, very fundamental things like creating what I would call a hardened messaging framework. I've been through messaging frameworks many times over my many years. There's only a handful of messaging that I've seen done well. Messaging can be just a kind of a tick box, which is like, well, here are the three problems I think we have. Here are the three solutions I think we have. And like, here are the features that make them real. Very rarely are they hardened. And what I mean by hardened is you need to really look deeper at the user, at your target persona. And there are techniques you use like jobs theory, which is you know pretty trendy these days, which is like to me getting to the root cause of the user's need. And you know that is exactly the experience that I've had at Zeppelin. You know, when I first started speaking to users, they would tell me, "Hey, like we love Zeppelin because it's the source of truth for us." And I heard that over and over. I didn't really know what that meant. And so, you know, with jobs theory, you know, if that's the technique you want to use, you have to go much, much further. And when you unpack things, I tried to understand what do you mean by source of truth? I learned some really fascinating things. What I learned is that people, in the case of Zeppelin, source of truth meant Zeppelin is where the finalized design lives. It's where before I begin writing code, I go to Zeppelin and I know that that design is locked. Users would use terms like it's locked or it's crystallized or it's like solidified or it's hardened. And I began to learn, golly, like one of the big value props we have is that we provide the source of finalization for designs. And, you know, that's like a deeper level of product marketing. That's like a deeper level of needs analysis. And you're articulating and positioning the value of what the user needs. Like, you know, that took time, right? That took me like a while to really get convicted about in the beginning. Things like that didn't seem that valuable to a newbie like me. And then once you spend more time with users and you speak to them and then you say, is finalization a thing? And they'll say, well, I don't really know, but could you explain what you mean? And then when you explain, it's like a light bulb. They're like, yes, my gosh, that's exactly <laughs> what is valuable to us. Golly, I didn't even realize that we needed that. So, you know, those sorts of learnings, like I'm very fortunate to work at a place like Salesforce where like messaging is a big deal. You know, like if you do a messaging framework, you know, I don't want to drop names, but like when people like Mark Benioff review a messaging framework, you know, they know what good looks like. And so, you know, you learn how to harden messaging frameworks. You learn how to create really simple content that optimizes for simplicity instead of completeness or accuracy. You know, a lot of assets that you can create end up being like a data sheet, which is like, I got to cover all the great things I do because I love my product. Not awesome. Not an awesome approach. What you really want to do is think about your user. How much can they consume? And this product video, if you want to make a product video, like 45 seconds to a minute, minute and a half, like you'll be lucky if they remember two or three things. So optimize for two or three things. Like these are all, they sound so, so simple, but unless you've done them the hard way, it's very easy to keep making those mistakes.
I'm so glad you brought that up because I was actually just going through this recently with our good buddy, Scott Holden, who's the CMO of ThoughtSpot, who, by the way, is the first episode of this show for our listeners who haven't went back and listened to Scott's episode. He's great. We're talking about this exact same thing. And funny enough, he brought up Mark Benioff as well for the way that he would look at messaging. And one of the things that we were talking about is like this idea of headline message, you know, your three supporting pieces there and that like you have to rank order those you can't just kind of say like oh you know here's a bunch of stuff that matter it's like okay what is the most important thing and when you and i were talking before this in prep for this episode this idea of like the finalized design and pulling quotes like on your website where you have the head of ux at boxing you know zeppelin is the source of truth for finalized designed if it's not in zeppelin it won't be in the shipped product like those are such powerful words to show that like where the finalized design is, is something that is really important and purposeful to push towards. But the customers might not necessarily say those exact words potentially, right? Like, did you do any any research? Did you find that some of the customers couldn't really articulate that themselves? Yeah, 100%. Like, that is such a great point, Ian. Like, users, they will tell you how they use the product, they will provide you great insight. What they won't do is synthesize for you. And I think that's the point that is the lesson for me at companies like at Salesforce, which is you can have a bunch of input from users. What you don't want to do is relay that input. So they tell you a bunch of stuff and you're like, great, let me summarize it and categorize it. And let me just relay it in my messaging. Not cool. Like relaying is not great. What you want to do is synthesize. And synthesize is another way of saying you have to curate that message. You have to like take all these inputs and then say, okay, what is it that I really see here? It's a series of choices in the finalization messaging that we're talking about that that was a completely non-obvious choice. When I think about finalization, most users didn't really know what finalization was. In fact, the feedback I got when I proposed finalization to them was, that doesn't make sense to me. The design is never final. There's no such thing like within the design world. It's sort of a, a joke. It's like a meme, which is when someone says, where's the final design? They kind of like they react with like a funny face because well, think about it. The Airbnb app that you use, I think it probably has been updated every month. Every time you install it on your phone, right? It gets updated. It's never a vinyl. It's always just an iteration that's getting better all the time. So they don't even think about the word final. So yes, you have to curate that. You have to explain what you mean by finalized. That's sort of the jobs theory approach. And then then when you position what you mean by the word finalized, you will get a better signal of yes, like that makes sense to me. And then another part of the curation is the amount of priority you put on it. Just like you said, is it one of the three? In the beginning, when I looked at things like finalization, you know, you can get like a static version of designs all over the place. And so I had to really think about working with the team hey, like, what's the difference between that and what we do? And so there's a series of product truths below the word finalized. It's like, a, I always like to use the iceberg analogy. So like your messaging is at the top above the waterline. It looks really simple. It's like in a table with like a few rows and like it's messaging. It looks like simple, like what's the big deal? But there's like an iceberg of defensibility and data and logic behind that. And that's what I mean by like hardened messaging. And then once you get there, you can use finalized design with anybody. Like I'm new to this industry, Ian, like I don't have a UX background, 
do not have a product design background. I just, I love it. I, I'm a wannabe in that department, but I sit down with people who are thought leaders in this space now and I walk through our value prop and it resonates with them. Like I'm delighted in how much enthusiasm there is around Zeppelin and what we offer. And the only reason I have any of that credibility is because people taught me during all those customer interviews, industry analysts that I spoke to, like they really helped me understand what value we provide. And once I curated the messages, you know, I'm very confident speaking about them. I'm always learning, of course, but that comes from curating, from like prioritizing. You really have to invest in it. Otherwise, you know, you just end up with kind of flat, generic sounding messaging and you could take your logo off and put a competitor's logo on. Like, that's not cool. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think that that's something that we all struggle with, which is what is lame versus what stands out versus what is sensationalized. You know, I think that that stuff is really difficult. I mean, you always hear of the Henry Ford, if I had asked people, they would, they would ask for a faster horse thing. But that stuff is like really true, right? People can diagram their problem or they can't diagram their problem. They can just kind of explain what is happening around them. But that doesn't mean that they're going to get to the right message on their own and you have to help them. But we also, as marketers want to, we want to stand out, right? We want to sound interesting. We want to, you know, hopefully help them like realize something about themselves. Like, oh, that is the thing that I've been searching for. And it can be a tough balance. Totally. We all want that very simple, elegant, pithy, a thousand songs in your pocket that kind of says it all. Like we all want that. I don't think it's always going to happen, but like, yes, that's the goal is to get there where like you curate a message that people totally get. It's so simple. It has a ton of value baked into it. And, you know, it's hard to do, but that's what makes marketing super fun and interesting. One of the things that makes it so much fun. Okay, let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Playbook is where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. I know you're still less than a year at Zeppelin, so we'll talk about some tactics that help you win there, but also helped you win at, at Salesforce, Dropbox, and other places. What are three channels or tactics that are your most uncuttable budget items? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love this question, uncuttable. Well, at Zeppelin, number one is content. And I know when people think of budget items, they may not think of content. They may just think, oh, that's organic. It doesn't cost anything. I don't agree. I, I think content is an investment area. You know, at Zeppelin, we have some great content writers. We have some vendors that we use on the content side. We have tools that we use to stand up our content. Like we're, you know, going to be moving, we're on Medium. We're going to, you know, move off of Medium pretty soon, bring that onto our .com. That's all content. We want to SEO optimize that content. That takes investment. So to do content right, to have like a SEO strategy with like, message clustering and then making sure that you show up on that first page like that's all investment that doesn't just like happen overnight because you hope you write good content everything just like you know there's like magic like it's a plan that's not something i think we would cut given our product is really community driven for the most part the second investment area is our website and again when people think of tactics they may not always think of website because we're a hybrid self-service and sales assist model, you know, our website is super, super critical. So making sure that that website is optimized for top of funnel, middle and you know, purchase is important. And again, that doesn't just happen. You have to be very thoughtful about when you update your website with different features, when you want to run a promo, when you want to spin up a landing page and how will that affect the overall kind of revenue footprint for your company. 
And then the third one, which might sound uh, maybe a little odd, is essentially growth experiments in our MarTech stack. And I put those together because you just can't have one without the other. You know, for us to drive uh, revenue, drive demand, it's all about running experiments through the high volume of visitors we get, the high volume of freemium traffic that we get, just the very high volume of expansion that we get. And this is one of the things that I loved learning about at my time in Dropbox is just how much insight there is on users. We have all of this great data on usage behavior. We have demographic and firmographic data of where they come from. It's like a treasure chest for a, for a marketer to be able to say, hey, like, it looks like this percentage of users are acting this way in March. Why is that? And is there anything we can do to help them? And you know, investing in those areas is super, super critical to us. What you won't hear from me are things like form captures for leads. Don't even know if that's a thing anymore, but I still see it once in a while, like things like that. You know, we don't buy email lists. We don't do any paid digital, although, you know, we certainly experiment a little bit. So those might be surprising to people because I think, you know, those historically have been what I might have said, you know, in the past. You know, you mentioned the investment in content going from a place where you didn't historically have a lot of investment into content or into marketing at all or no, no investment. How do you prioritize? I mean, right now, I would say that we do have a short-term and long-term you know, benchmark for what we want to do. Content is a long-term game. It's not like you spin up three or four blog posts and all of a sudden it rains like the next day. Like You have to build up towards that. And since we're starting, this is a nine-month to two-year journey to where we actually want to be with our content. But that's a priority. But it's over a longer window. Website and growth experiments, much, much shorter. Those have much, much more transactional and immediate results. And so that's baked into our growth plan for this year, for example. So we prioritize it for the short term. I think the final thing, because we are starting our go-to-market journey, essentially, with like this level of investment, I think the way that we really want to operate is it's all about trying things and succeeding is great, but like learning is way better. The reason is marketing just isn't a rinse and repeat. You can't just have done growth optimization at one company, come do the exact same thing at another company and think that anything will ever look the same. Like there are just so many variables, like the audiences, the deal sizes, like the product value prop itself. Like there's just so many variables. Otherwise, like marketing would just be like an AI product by now and you would just like tell your bot to do it. And so I think prioritization is fine. Learning is better. We will learn a ton about content. We will learn a ton about website optimizations. We will learn a ton about using certain data points from our MarTech stack that we've recently built to run growth experiments. Like, so yeah, I just find it's tough to prioritize when you don't have you know a bunch of history to learn from. So I'd say we're going to learn, we're going to help our users, and hopefully, you know, in the process, you know, good things will happen. Any uh, fun experiments that you're excited to run here soon? Yes, we are. You know, we're we're doing some price optimization, and so as part of a price optimization, you know, you have users that have purchased you at a certain price and then that will change and in this case it'll actually change for the better in terms of like cost and everything but it's a change it's a new skew it's a new feature set all these things and so i consider that to be again an experiment we have not done that before and so i'm very curious to see what happens we've done you know a bunch of survey data we've actually even brought on an external pricing agency that's awesome they you know do this for a living and they've done it for great companies we're getting great signal on all the changes like users are very favorable to the changes we want to make. It will really help them. They appreciate it. 
but it's still an experiment, you know, like I think relying too much on survey data is uh, I'm just a paranoid person when it comes to that. And so I'm very eager to see what will happen. But, you know, these are big changes coming in and within the first few months instituting big pricing changes like this, like it's exciting. It's also, you know, it's also the sort of thing that kind of in the middle of the night you'll pop up and you're like, oh, gosh, what could happen here? But uh, that's what makes the job again so much fun. You have run some. I'll say historic campaigns. I'll brag for you. Say so you feel <laughs> uh, like you're not bragging for yourself, but some really cool things. You've run some plays at Salesforce and at Dropbox that are really cool campaigns, if you can even call them campaigns. Can you share a little bit about those things that you ran? Well, it's very kind of you to say, Ian. We Canadians aren't particularly good at that sort of thing. So it's nice of you to say. <laughs> <laughs> Self-promotion, sure. <laughs> well, it's 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 all a group of people that made it all happen. I think the one that I'm probably the most proud of is the right word, but the one that definitely stands out in my mind is a sales program we ran at Salesforce. And the reason I mention it is that it was a surprise to me. It was a program where it, like, it's kind of the opposite of what you would think, where our challenge was our sales teams wanted more pipeline, right? And so I can't believe I'm saying that out loud. Everyone probably has that etched into their brain who's on the demand gen side with a captive sales team. You know, we need more pipeline, like marketing, what's the deal? Like, you know, you're falling behind. And when I looked at our demand gen, you know, we had different sources of demand gen and sources of pipeline. And we did have gated assets back then where we had lead capture. We had a great ebook at Salesforce that, you know, was kind of the evergreen asset that kept giving us leads. It was all great, but just wasn't enough. And one of the things that, you know, the team noticed was that, hey, like we have all of these add-on products at Salesforce. You know, it's a, basically a business that's based upon landing your dominant kind of beachhead product of CRM. And then you expand by having all these great add-ons. Salesforce has, you know, golly, it feels like 100 add-ons sometimes, which is a good problem to have. And so how do we generate all of this pipeline for all these add-ons? And I remember when I sat down with my sales partner, he said to me, hey, like, Naaman, I, I have to hit my number this year you keep coming in with all of these add-ons. You keep coming in wanting to enable my team. They have to get in a cab and go pitch these products. Like, I don't know which ones are going to be winners. Like, this doesn't work for me. Like, let's, can we do something? And so what we decided to do was build a data-driven propensity to buy model where we would look at a customer and say, hey, you've got, you know, a CRM product from Salesforce. That's great. Let's take a look at how you're using that product. And now let's compare you to other companies who are also using this product, but they have bought a couple of add-ons. Is there anything in their usage behavior? Is there anything in their industry vertical? Is there anything in their company size? Is there anything in the other demographic or firmographic data? Because we have all of that. Let's build a model where we can forecast that if you're a company with these attributes, there is a higher propensity for you to buy this add-on. This all sounds really simple, but it's actually not. We had a wonderful data science team at Salesforce that would like build these data models for us in partnership. And they were awesome. They kind of made this whole thing possible. And then we built a, a model for our sales partners. And we would say, hey, like hit this dashboard. You will see the list of accounts that you are responsible for. You might be 100 of them. And then you'll see some data. Of those 100, you will see a flag for the accounts where we believe there's a high propensity to sell a certain add-on product. You will also see the average deal size we believe you can get. You will also see the average deal cycle time. So if I'm a rep and I manage 100 accounts and I have to hit my number, 
at the beginning of the year, it's sort of a bewildering period. You don't know where this revenue is going to come from. You don't know where to spend your time. Do I spend 100 hours with account A? Do I do a proof of concept at account B? Like, it's just bewildering. But with this propensity model, they see something very different, which is like, of my 100 accounts, huh, I can get 100K here. Looks like, and it'll take two months. Looks like I can get 50K here and it'll take a week. Just what I just said, being able to get that level of targeting is like super valuable to them. They loved that. And, you know, we would agree with them to say, hey, like if you get 20 propensity to buy accounts, you will agree to follow up on, let's say, half of them. And so they pick 10 to follow up on. Soon as they pick those 10, that would generate a sales stage one in Salesforce, which would mean it's early. It's not even pipeline yet. It's like a, you know, it's like a memo. But in the end, what ends up happening is the sales team source their own pipeline, their own demand gen based on a propensity to buy model, when they tag those deals for follow-up, it generates a sales cycle. And in summary, myself as a marketer, I can see that, hey, the accounts that I helped build a propensity model for, I then provided you know, sales and marketing assets for them to pitch that product to those accounts with value prop. I then helped do enablement to help them become comfortable and, and you know, confident in pitching those products. If those ever closed or generated pipeline or you know, whatever, I can attribute all of that back to the work that we did. So it's sort of like, in summary, you move away from like, I don't know, putting together a first call deck and then doing a bunch of enablement and trying to see some correlated pipeline, that loose correlation, it moves from loose correlation to hard causality because every propensity to buy account gets tagged and that's linked back to the sales play program. So yeah, it was just an amazing experience. So what was the final results of the entire initiative? So we saw a pretty significant increase in pipelines. Remember, this goes back to the whole reason we did this thing, which was, hey, I need more pipeline. So it was like, I think, 36% increase in add-on pipeline, which is pretty big when you think about the pipeline that we're talking about at Salesforce. This is like hundreds and hundreds of millions. So 36% lift is kind of crazy. And we went from scenarios where when I had joined, it was very hard to get time with the sales teams. The partnership was, you know, not, the greatest. It was okay. I wouldn't say it was great. It went from that to like regional VPs calling me and saying, can you send PMM to come run this sales play workshop in my territory? Because they knew that if they ran that at the end of the workshop, literally once the hour and a half was over, they would have a series of accounts with early stage pipeline, which is what we both want. They want pipeline. We want pipeline. So that's where that 36% lift came from. Like the best thing was the partnership we had with sales, right? It's very rare that they, <laughs> that sales will call and say, hey, like I will take my team off the field. Can you get an hour and a half with them? Like it's usually the other way around. It's usually the marketers begging, you know, for that kind of coverage. So yeah, great lift in pipeline, but even better partnership with sales. Like that's the sort of stuff that means the most at the end of the year. What about your Dropbox growth marketing initiatives? That was completely different. You know, that's one of the reasons I joined Dropbox was to learn as a marketer how to engage with this self-serve engine. And, you know, Dropbox arguably, I think, has one of the best self-serve engines in the industry. And it was, you know, just a privilege for me to be able to learn from them and learn from my time there. That's really, really different. That's where, as a marketer, we really did two things. The first thing is we did a lot of work around segmentation. And what this means is, you know, at Dropbox, there are hundreds and millions of users on, let's say, the free plans that they have. To be able to segment them and identify what are the cohorts and what make them different was 
completely non-trivial. And there are two types of segmentation that I guess I would call out here. One is behavioral segmentation, which means, hey, of all these free users, here's a percentage that are, you know, monthly active users, mouse. Here's a percentage that are weekly actives. Here's a percentage that are daily actives. You can get into the types of activity, how many are uploading files, how many are collaborating. There's all kinds of great stuff around like active user analysis that can be done. That's awesome. And that's part of what we did. The other section is bringing in what I would call like user persona based data, which is that, hey, like it's January, we see a lot of activity with cohort 725. You know, what do we see? Well, we see them uploading a lot more docs, we see them sharing, blah, blah, blah. Okay, it's great. But what exactly is it that they're doing? <laughs> That's where the persona is missing. And I remember I would sit down with like the head of product at the time at Dropbox, and he and I would chat and he would say like, yeah, there's all this activity, like, name in, like, who are these people? Like, are they doctors? Or like, what, what are they doing with Dropbox? And so we would, as a marketer, we would bring that and we, we would bring that insight and based on survey data, based upon other segmentation techniques. And we would learn really amazing things. We would learn things like there's a significant cohort of users that use Dropbox to do their taxes every year. Did we ever have like a Dropbox for taxes campaign up until then? Nope. You know, should we? Maybe. So it's identifying usage behavior, identifying persona-based behavior, and then creating an offer and messaging to help that user get more value out of the product. And that's really how marketing works with growth and worked with growth, I guess, at that time to really, you know, help drive the growth business all the way from top of funnel through paid conversion, through, you know, expansion, helping mitigate churn, those sorts of things. And it's a great way to have like marketing working with like a product growth team. So how are you getting those insights? How are you figuring out how the people were using the product? There are like two main ones that I would call out. The first one really is just speaking to users. And so we would do lots of great quantitative surveys. We would also do great qualitative focus groups. We had a great program called Real World Wednesdays. It's an amazing program. It's basically like focus groups that were already scheduled for the entire year. And it happened every Wednesday. And you could sign up for a real world Wednesday. You could have a set of topics you wanted to review with those users. And the quant and qual, that combination, again, with a great marketer who can then synthesize that and come up with some curated insights was number one. The second part is taking a look at the usage behavior in the tool. So you can see the kinds of content and it's all anonymized. So you don't know who the actual user is, but you can see, are they uploading financial data? Are they sharing with external parties? You can glean a lot of insight if you invest in data science. You can actually build a pretty complete picture of what the user is doing. And you see that in other industries, right? You see that in like social media. They know what I'm going to have for lunch right now. It's kind of bananas. So if you invest in really learning about your customer, quant, qual, take a look at how they use your app and you kind of iterate on it and become really good at it, it makes for much, much more sophisticated, targeted, high ROI marketing. It's actually pretty interesting that, you know, as the leader, the marketing leader getting insights from that, you weren't running the focus groups, but you were leveraging the information. So anyway, it's just an interesting kind of data point there. Okay, let's get to our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh, here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. This is where we talk about healthy tension. Have you had a memorable dust-up in your career? 
<laughs> I would say, thankfully, no, I don't think I have a memorable one. But certainly, you know, there are ups and downs and challenges at every company. And I've had the good fortune of working, you know, at, at some great ones. So like the Microsoft experience, I would say, you know, pretty different than Autodesk, very different than Salesforce and then Dropbox. If you want my advice, I do have one. I think the number one thing I've learned is something I actually learned back in Canada when I did my accounting degree. There's this thing called a chartered accountant thing that I did. And to do your chartered accountant in Canada, typically people take a prep course. I took a prep course and I learned this technique there and I've kept it with me all these years. And it's really simple. It's called manage the moment and succeed. And it's like a tagline that was part of this program. And what it really means is that when you're going through different challenges and, you know, in your career and you're working with teams and you have all these like time pressure and all kinds of stuff that's coming at you, there'll be a moment where you're really, really challenged. It'll be like this moment in time. And what ends up happening is all you really need to do is manage that moment. And unfortunately, sometimes that moment can be representative of the whole thing. So if I give it the example in the exam, it's like this four day exam. It's like four hours a day. And you might hit a question that totally throws you off and freaks you out. And that could send you into a spiral where you totally screw up the whole day. But all you really need to do is manage the moment. If you manage that moment, everything will be fine. And the same applies in sort of the challenges when you're at work. There'll be a moment you get an email that's kind of spicy or like someone says something in a meeting that kind of rubs you the wrong way or like something happens that like you're having trouble digesting. If you just manage that moment, treat it like a moment, the odds are a week from now or a month from now, you will forget it even happened. You will be feel very differently about it. So just manage the moment and you will succeed. Okay, let's get to our final segment here. This is quick hits. Quick questions, and quick answers. Just like conversationalmarketingwithqualified.com, qualified prospects are on your website right now, and you can talk to them quickly with Qualified. They're the best. We love Qualified. They've been with us since the beginning of the show, and they're just awesome in every way. So go check out qualified.com to learn more. You can talk with a salesperson in the next five minutes, probably, unless you're up super late at night. But uh, you can talk to a salesperson right away and check out qualified.com. Quick hits. Naaman, are you ready? I am ready. Number one, do you have a TV show, a book, a podcast, or something that you've been binging recently? Yeah, I would say so. We've been binging on, you know, Netflix and HBO Max and all this stuff. And we really like these Scandinavian noir sort of uh, shows. We've watched like a dozen of them. They're really dark and they all kind of have the same playbook. And you have to read all the subtitles, which is kind of fun. But yeah, we love that. Like I've never watched so many of these gritty kind of crime dramas as I have during this COVID period. So I think that's our indulgence on the entertainment side. If you weren't in marketing, what do you think you'd be doing? You know, I would love to be an industrial product designer. Industrial product design has always just been so fascinating to me. I've just been a bit of a design junkie on the side. These things occur to me every day, like in my daily life, I will use a product and I will wonder like, why was it designed this way? wouldn't it have made more sense for it to be designed another way? One example is we were traveling on a train in Northern Europe last summer. And I remember sitting on this train and I wanted to do some work on my laptop because it was like a long train ride. And I naturally, because, you know, I'm from North America, I looked for the latch on the back of the chair so I could pull down the tray and like put my laptop down, kind of like, you know, on an airplane. 
And I just couldn't see it. I couldn't see a latch. All I saw was the back of a chair and it was like leather. And I was wondering, huh, that's weird. Like who designed this thing? But then I thought, you know what? If somebody really cared about the user, they probably wouldn't create this latch that takes up physical space, takes time to manufacture, takes time to attach to the chair. I bet if I just touch the back of this chair, something magic is going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. I just touched the back of the chair and there was like some spring-loaded thing and like this little tray table came out of nowhere. And I was just so impressed by that. I was so impressed by how thoughtful the industrial product designer was. I thought about how much they thought through the impact on the environment of creating a latch and think thought about how it was unnecessary. And it's just such a beautiful, elegant design. It probably costs less than a latch. But little things like that mean a lot to me and it may sound bizarre to people like what's the big deal but it's just symbolic of a level of user empathy a level of sophistication in product design i just think it's fascinating i think it's something we should all aspire to do you know who are involved in creating products <laughs> there you go what do you do for fun i love tennis and uh, i played a lot when i was uh, younger and then i just sort of fell off as i uh, got older and other things became a priority and with covid we've recently gotten into tennis as a family so we have this membership at an indoor club near uh, where we live and so we go out there two or three times a week it's amazing it's such a great way to get active and clear your mind and you know it's a pretty tough game it's one of those things that looks a little easier than it actually is and so it's a constant challenge and it's also a great way to spend time together as a family so it's um it's been fantastic best advice for a first-time cmo or just a cmo who's trying to figure out their demand gen strategy i think there it's less about knowing what to do it's more managing yourself when you don't know what to do if that makes any sense and i think what i'm trying to say is that you have to take a learning mindset don't fall into this trap where you have to know everything you don't. And people who do demand gen really, really well, you may think, well, they just know everything. They don't. No one does. In this field, particularly things like MarTech, MarTech stack for demand gen, it feels like it changes almost every month. There's like a new set of tools that people are using that I've never heard of. So you're constantly in this incredibly innovative changing environment. You're never going to be someone who says, yep, I know it all. I know how to do attribution all the way from, you know, it's just, I don't buy any of that stuff. Like, I think what you have to do is be like, kind to yourself, have a learning mindset, know what you're really strong on, know what you need to build and kind of learn more about in your journey. And don't give yourself a hard time that you don't have everything figured out on day one. And I think if you take that approach, like you'll be able to prioritize, you'll be able to kind of grasp, grapple the demand gen monster, make a lot of great progress, but just, you know, not expecting to have it all figured out on day one is probably the best lesson that I've learned. It's a journey. It's a journey for all of us. Well, our listeners can go to zeppelin.io to learn more about your company. It's really cool to see. It's a fantastic product and it's exciting to chat with you about all the cool stuff you're doing for marketing. So for everybody out there, go talk to uh, your front end developer if you want to learn more about design delivery. Any uh, any final thoughts? Anything to plug here, Naaman? Yeah, I would say if you're if I'm going to plug something, for sure. If you're a product lead or if you work on product design or you work on front end development, you probably know about Zeppelin or you know you may not. It's really great to see what Zeppelin does. I think people historically have turned to Zeppelin as a source of technical specs. And I think in summary, like of all the customers I've spoken to, it's amazing how they use Zeppelin to do a bunch of stuff that has nothing to do with specs. And so I guess the short message is, 
it may not be what you think it is. And so it's always uh, worth taking a look at Zeppelin if you're on the product design and development side. Fantastic. Awesome. Naaman, thanks again for joining and, uh, and we'll talk soon. That's a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. The ManGen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.